So my guess is you are extremely prepared for today's conversation, even more than usual. And tell me why. You had a lot of time on your hands. You mean because the uh, World Series ended so quickly and more importantly, I really wasn't watching it? (laughs) Because you did not watch an inning like most Americans of the World Series. Was that just too bad? I mean, like I look forward to a World Series. Every year. Every year I look forward to it. I probably watched three innings of this World Series, and it would just depress me to no end that Nathan Avaldi pitched a gem last night. The pitcher yeah. the Red Sox let go. But anyway, good for him. Texas Rangers are world champions. They are world champions. I beat you, by the way, by two-thirds of an inning because I checked ESPN.com last night and saw there was one out in the bottom of the ninth. So I was like, okay, I'm going to watch the last two outs and watch the celebration. So I had previously watched three innings. We were tied, but then going into the bottom of the ninth, I won it in the bottom of the ninth, watched two outs in the championship. So. Did you see, you remember that the Rangers lost the World Series. They were within one strike of the World Series in 2010, I think it was. And of course, I saw the stat that their current coach, Bruce Bocci, was the manager of San Francisco Giants when the Rangers back then were within one strike of winning the World Series and lost. Yep. Brutal. Amazing. Brutal. Okay. Well, we'll see if that makes the podcast tomorrow when this airs. Do you know what is going to make the podcast? What's that? Mailbag request. Uh, we've got Here we uh, go. an episode or two coming up over the next weeks. So I think that uh, Thanksgiving will make for a very good mailbag episode. We got a couple of really interesting notes in over the last week. So keep them coming. Send them to me. Do you know who has not written us yet? Uh, your mom? No, she sends me notes all the time. She thinks that you do a great job. No, uh, the new speaker of the house, Mike Johnson. Well, do we still have a speaker? Has it been a week that we actually have a speaker for a week? Has he lasted one Scaramucci yet? He's a couple of Scaramuchis and he has lasted. But my question to you is, has his honeymoon lasted? And if so, how long will it go? We'll see. The conservative side of his caucus, the House Freedom Caucus, he had a meeting with them this week, and I supposedly it went very well. They love the guy. He's one of them. He's very conservative. He's a very conservative speaker. So that means what happens when the more moderate side of the Republican Party, the 14 or so Republicans who represent districts that Joe Biden won, will they keep this honeymoon going? They certainly voted for him to be speaker. The question is, can he keep this all together? And there's some indications already just a week into his speakership, he may be headed down a very troubled road. On Hannity this week, he got a bunch of Republicans to all be interviewed together and to talk about what House Republicans are going to do. They all raised their hand when Hannity asked, are you going to impeach President Biden? So that's the first thing that will cause some angst, I think, among some of the more moderate Republicans. But the second thing, with a government shutdown currently scheduled for November 17th, if they can't pass spending bills, Mike Johnson floated a crazy idea today where each of the 12 appropriation bills would be considered separately. They would be staggered. And if I understand this correctly, it would essentially create a rolling set of deadlines where every week or so, or maybe even more frequent than that, we would have the threat of another government shutdown. It just seems absurd. But anyway, Speaker Johnson said he was going to do things differently, and maybe that's how he's going to do things differently. We're just going to be under constant government shutdown threat. 
the quote that you put in the Political Wire piece on it was uh, Representative Rosa DeLauro, Democrat of Connecticut, telling Roll Call, quote, I think the speaker doesn't have a clue. That's 12 shutdowns. What are we talking about? As you think about the moderate Republicans, and as we all are learning more about Mike Johnson, and there was a new report out last night I saw from CNN where they're finding more social type issues, gay conversion theory and stuff that Mike Johnson has proposed. And I think I have this right. Maybe he referred to it as a mental illness or some such thing like that. Do I have that right? Did you see that? Yeah. His wife runs a counseling outfit that essentially subscribes to this gay conversion therapy. And anyway, yeah, all of the things that have been disproven about such theories, the new speaker apparently believes all of them. So so will the moderates have a problem with his social positions, with his foreign aid positions, or with these funding positions that you were just talking about? I mean, what will they actually end up caring about? And I guess, I don't know where you would throw Biden impeachment in there, but they all went for him. It was unanimous. So what's a surprise and what is it that turns them off course? Well, remember when we talked about this last week on Trial Balloon, the reason they went for him probably was more out of fatigue in that the pain of not having a speaker was greater than the pain of voting for a speaker who might have objectionable views. The pain at that millisecond. At that millisecond when they were voting and finally they had floated this new guy, new face. He was not Steve Scalise. He was not Jim Jordan. He was not Kevin McCarthy. He was this new guy. And anyway, America has been learning about this new guy ever since. And a lot of these ideas are way out of the mainstream. And so whether it's his positions on abortion, which we know are unpopular, particularly in districts that Joe Biden won, or whether it's some of these other very conservative social positions that he's taken. Yeah, I think all of those are going to be tough for those moderate Republicans. Insofar as a shutdown occurs, or as we just talked about, 12 different shutdowns potentially, it will depend upon whether or not there's a shutdown or not. So we'll see. Maybe he's come up with a very clever way of actually keeping the government open and people like Rosa DeLora, who is the top appropriator for Democrats. Maybe she doesn't have a clue and she doesn't understand. And then Mike Johnson has come up with a new way to fund the government. I somehow doubt that, but that's where we're headed right now. So I think all of these potentially threaten these more moderate members of the Republican caucus. And you know, we'll see if Mike Johnson can keep them in line. My favorite story that we've learned about Mike Johnson came this week with the revelation that Mike Johnson has never disclosed that he has a bank account. How could someone not have a bank account? Well, it turns out that there are various levels of assets that you need in your bank account before you have to actually disclose it. For instance, you need, I think, $1,000 in a checking account over the course of whatever period of time. And if you don't have $1,000 in the checking account, then you don't have to disclose the account. So what's happened here, apparently, is that Mike Johnson either isn't disclosing bank accounts that he has, or he is actually living paycheck to paycheck off of his congressional salary and never seems to have enough money after he pays his mortgage and other expenses to have more than $1,000 in his checking account. I find that kind of extraordinary. I don't even know what to make of that. I, I did not see that piece. I mean, okay, if he's living paycheck to paycheck on some level, that makes him more aligned with more Americans in a way. I mean, so, okay, let's say that that's the case. I don't have really a comment on that. The other part though, I mean, that just seems weird. Assuming that he's got $1,001 
in a checking account somewhere? Does he just have like a hundred accounts each with a thousand dollars? It is completely unclear. So this was a report that was done by the Daily Beast. And I just find it fascinating. I mean, because he is a very different kind of politician. No one's ever dug into his background. And so they're digging into his financial disclosures and they find that he doesn't have much to disclose. Now, let's go with the paycheck by paycheck theory that he just doesn't have enough money in any of these accounts. I mean, it is true that he has four or five kids. I'm not entirely sure how many kids he has. There's one adopted son who is not really a adopted who doesn't really show up in holiday photos and things like that. And then he's got four other kids who do show up in his holiday photos, but that's probably expensive to have that many children that you're supporting. The financial disclosures are there to get an understanding of what are the potential conflicts of interest that our lawmakers have. I don't know if we've ever had someone in such power who doesn't have enough money on a weekly basis to look beyond his next paycheck. That's pretty interesting. Well, I do think that our title for last week's episode, It's a Later Problem, is not just coming true, but it's also reminding me of the other line, it's getting late early. (laughs) That's a good one. It's getting late early for the moderates, and they kicked the can down the road, but not very far. If uh, Mike Johnson has not gotten knocked out yet, he's still standing up for a week, You put a headline up this week that Trump hopes for a knockout blow in Iowa. So let's talk about Iowa for a second. Tim Scott is going for broke there. Ron DeSantis is visiting every county, he says. Chris Christie is ignoring it. He's going to just see y'all in New Hampshire. And my question is, does any of that matter? And here's why I ask it. The Washington Post wrote, With just over two months until the caucuses, Trump, who has rallied enthusiastic support as he faces 91 charges across four criminal indictments, is in a dominant position over his rivals in the state. Interviews with local GOP strategists and officials, voters, campaign advisors, and polls show. Below him sits a traffic jam of lower tier candidates. That's a great phrase, including several intensifying their focus in Iowa. The dynamic leaves Trump for now insulated from any breakaway challenger and eyeing a knockout blow, while others look for a strong enough showing to survive beyond the state. In the state many anti-Trump Republicans hoped would expose his weaknesses, Trump has instead maintained strength this year, running with near-incumbent status and legal problems that have only galvanized his base. There seems to be no place for Tim Scott. Vivek is fading. You don't see much of him anymore. Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis appear to be the top alternatives. Are they real alternatives? Well, if you're 40 or 50 percentage points behind the front runner, I'm not sure how real they really are. I mean, they're real in the fact that they're not polling in the 3% or the 4% level that Vivek Ramaswamy or Chris Christie is polling, or Tim Scott for that matter. They're all pretty much putting their bets on Iowa at this point. It's really interesting. Ramaswamy has announced that he's got an eight-figure ad blitz in Iowa and New Hampshire. It's going to be roughly $8 million spent in Iowa, $4 million spent in New Hampshire through the end of the year. Tim Scott has pulled all his resources. He's betting everything on Iowa at this point. Ron DeSantis knows that he has to finish probably no worse than second place to even have a chance or to continue in this race. Nikki Haley is probably the exact same thing, but 
it's hard to say how any of them have much of a chance when the front runner for the Republican nomination, he's polling national and granted these are national polls and not state level polls, but he's polling nationally at more than 50%. I've seen several polls this week where he was at 53%, 57%. Chris, I know you weren't the best at math when we were in school together, but if you're polling over 50%, all the other guys combined are polling less than that. And that means you're going to win the election. To be clear, I didn't have to be the best at math. I just had to be better than the worst in math. I feel pretty good about my performance there compared to some who will remain nameless. That's funny because I always caught you looking at my problem sets, Chris, but oh well. The other people who are sitting on the sidelines are Wall Street donors. 74 days before the Iowa caucuses, the biggest donor set in America is still undecided on the Republican presidential field, leaving millions up for grabs in what is expected to be the most expensive election ever, Semaphore reported. Are they sitting on the sidelines because they are not giving money to Trump? What are they waiting for? So according to that article, what they're waiting for is a true Trump alternative to emerge. They haven't been taken by Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, or any of the others. They don't want Donald Trump to become the nominee, but they don't see any alternative at this point. So the other news this week was that Miriam Adelson has had two high-profile visits, one by Nikki Haley, who is obviously looking to tap into Miriam Adelson's fortune that comes from casinos from her late husband. She and her husband were huge Republican donors in the last cycle, but we also learned that Donald Trump paid her a visit and that they spent over three hours having dinner at her home. So Donald Trump is still courting Miriam Adelson, and you'll recall that he gave her a big award when he was still president. So you know he has been planning this dinner, I think, for a very long time. But I think the biggest thing that this money that's sitting on the sidelines means is that there's potential that someone else could make a late entry into this race and that money could all power that person's candidacy. Right now, it doesn't appear who that could be. I suspect that because these Wall Street donors have no interest in backing Trump, that they would be interested in backing someone, anyone who might emerge. And the ones who are running right now don't seem to be the case. So we could have something similar to what happened in the speaker race. You know, as we saw candidate after candidate in the speaker race, Republican lawmakers weren't very interested. And that seems to be what's happening in the Republican primary. They're not interested in Nikki Haley. They're not interested in Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott or any of the others. Maybe someone could come out. Maybe a Mike Johnson of the Republican Party could come out, swoop in and be seen as a valid competitor to uh, Donald Trump. What a funny and interesting analogy. That makes sense. In a time where anything that expected does not seem to occur and everything that occurs seems to be something that was unexpected, why should this follow an expectation path if the money is sitting on the sidelines, if people are voting with their pocketbooks or their credit cards and not going in with either Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis or Tim Scott or any of the others, why shouldn't it go that route? And maybe there's, uh, I know you know, there's an election day uh, next week. And is it potentially possible that a Mike Johnson type person might emerge? And here's what I mean. So the key elections that people are watching will be Virginia and Ohio as well as governor elections in Kentucky and Mississippi. And there was an article that was posted on Political Wire, what Virginia's elections will tell us about 2024. And you wrote an analysis in Political Wire this week 
titled, What Virginia's Elections Will Tell Us About 2024. And you wrote, while there are gubernatorial races in Kentucky and Mississippi next week, it's the Virginia legislative races that will give us the clearest look at the political environment for next year's elections. That's because Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin has made a massive bet on abortion. Youngkin has branded his proposed 15-week abortion ban, which makes exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother, as no ban at all. In fact, the tagline on his main ad says, here's the truth, there is no ban. That's awesome. Because abortion is the dominant issue, both parties have spent considerable sums in the state. If Virginia's legislature flips to Republicans, it would suggest that Youngkin has threaded the needle on a difficult issue and could radically change GOP messaging going forward. It might also create an opening for Youngkin to make a late entry into the Republican 2024 presidential primary. If Democrats win in Virginia, it would be a sign to President Biden that the issue continues to be an albatross for Republicans up and down the ballot. So to understand the potential of the 2024 U.S. presidential race, you're saying that what we really ought to be doing is next Tuesday in 2023, we should watch the Virginia legislative races? I think it's an important thing because the special elections for the last year and a half have shown is that Republicans have had a very tough time with the issue of abortion. And whether it's a referendum in Kansas, whether it's uh, various special elections, as I said, whether it's the midterm elections last year, abortion is a tough issue, particularly as states across the country that are controlled by Republicans ban abortion, ban abortion at six weeks, ban abortion at 12 weeks, sometimes without exceptions. That's become a drag on Republican candidates across the country. Glenn Youngkin is embracing abortion as an issue, and his 15-week ban, which he says isn't a ban, very Orwellian, but also kind of perfect for our times in some ways. It's not a ban in the first 15 weeks. Exactly. It's not a ban. It's only a ban sometimes. In any event, this very Orwellian tagline that he has for this issue, some people think that it may be enough to trick voters or to allow Republicans to take control of Virginia's legislature. And if so, he has promised that they will pass that bill, that they will pass the 15-week abortion ban in Virginia. Now, if Democrats rise up and are able to stop that Republican takeover of the legislature, then that bill will go absolutely nowhere. So it is pretty interesting to see. And if he is successful, if Youngkin is successful, and the polls showed these races very close right now, so nobody's really putting much money on either side right now. If that's the case, then you could see national Republicans say, whoa, we found a new way to message about abortion. And it might be this Orwellian message that a ban is not a ban. But nonetheless, if it works in Virginia, you'll see a lot of Republicans try to trot that out around the country in various races and try to use that as an issue. And you might even see some try to draft Glenn Youngkin as a potential alternative to Donald Trump. I'm not saying it's likely. I'm not saying Youngkin, even if he got in the race, would have much better chance than uh, Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley against Donald Trump. But I do know that there's a lot of Republicans and a lot of Republicans with money who would like an alternative to Trump. And since the other ones aren't doing, maybe Glenn Youngkin is the Mike Johnson of the presidential race. Maybe he's the one who will come out of nowhere and become that alternative that these Republicans have been looking for. He also has the advantage, much like Mike Johnson, as voters don't know all that much about him. So he could burst onto the scene, have a lot of money behind him potentially, and maybe do damage to Donald Trump in some of these early states. 
I don't think the benefit of being unknown to voters should be underestimated. It's almost like, you know, once upon a time, being known, you had to be known. You had to have name recognition. You had to have a record. People had to know everything about you. I don't think that that's the case anymore. And the not being known today, particularly in a short run situation, which Youngkin could be in, gives you the opportunity to define yourself in a way that you would like, in a way that is most appropriate for that short period of time. I mean, if you're going to define a 15-week ban on abortion as not a ban, why would you not find other creative ways to define yourself in a short period of time? The part that makes me wonder, though, is when's the last time major Republican donor money picked the right horse? Are these (laughs) the same folks who put all their money on Jeb? This is some subset of folks, I guess. They did not put their money into DeSantis, although you know a number of big Republican donors did. So you know the fact that Republican big money donors are waiting for the next opportunity to put money on a candidate that might be a sign of a candidate to bet against. It's not smart money. I resisted the temptation to call it Republican smart money sitting on the sidelines, but it is money and it is unattached at this point. And so that could be fuel for another candidacy if it were to come. You know, and keep in mind, you know, Trump continues to have extraordinary legal problems really all over the place. He's got two cases this week that are being heard one in Colorado, one in Minnesota, which could potentially, if they work out against him, could potentially keep him off the ballots in those states in the 2024 election due to the 14th Amendment and preventing someone who led an insurrection or engaged in an insurrection from being on the federal ballot. Those are wildcard cases right there. There's the fraud case. And then, of course, there's the 91 criminal charges against him. Any one of these could actually end up hurting him as the nominee. Ron DeSantis says it's absolutely insanity that the Republican Party would consider nominating somebody who was convicted of one of these crimes, and he's only got 91 charges against him. So it's potentially likely that he could be convicted of at least one or more of these crimes before the election next year. And maybe someone like Glenn Youngkin really is plan B for the Republicans. But that would pretty much depend on Republicans having a very good Tuesday in Virginia. And depending upon how you look at the early voting, that's not a bet that I would want to make right now. So we'll see how that turns out next week. I don't think a guy who's proposing a 15-week abortion ban is looking to be plan B. I I don't think that's how he's going to, I don't think that's going to be the tagline. It's a very Orwellian moment here, Chris, and, and nothing kind of seems to go the way traditional politics once said it would, you know, since Donald Trump arrived on the scene. So who knows? Tell me quickly, in addition to Virginia, and we mentioned Ohio, because that's where after the special election a couple of months ago, I think there's uh, an abortion ban or limit item on the ballot there. What are we looking for in Kentucky? There's a governor's race. In Mississippi, there's a governor's race. Anything that can come out of either one of those two that would make us think anything about 2024? Well, obviously, if Governor Tate Reeves in Mississippi loses his race, Donald Trump came out this week and endorsed Reeves just as he did four years ago. But just as it was four years ago, this is a much closer race than perhaps anybody would have thought in a deep red state. And so there is a possibility that Brandon Presley, the Democratic candidate, could end up eking out a victory if things go his way. Again, not likely to happen, but if it does happen, that would obviously be a really interesting sign for Republicans. 
And then the other one in Kentucky, Andy Bashir is running against Daniel Cameron, the incumbent governor. Bashir is very popular in a deep red state, but he's a Democrat. And Daniel Cameron has proved himself in many ways to not be ready to handle this abortion issue. There have been, I think, as we mentioned a month or so ago, there was a devastating advertisement of a young woman who yes. essentially accused Daniel Cameron, if he was governor, that she would have been forced to have a child after she had been raped by her stepfather. And it was an absolutely one of the most devastating ads you've ever seen. And since that point, Daniel Cameron has been reeling in that race. And so it's predicted that Andy Bashir should end up winning that race. You mentioned in Ohio, the referendum to enshrine abortion rights in the Constitution. And in August, Republicans tried to lift the requirement from 50% to 60% in terms of what it would take to amend the state constitution. That measure failed, which was a really good sign for the side favoring abortion rights in Ohio. What is interesting about that race is that Republicans have tried to word the ballot question in a way that was favorable to the anti-abortion side of the debate. But polls there both show that the abortion rights side is still winning. And so it will be very interesting to see if that then gets locked up and that abortion rights are guaranteed in Ohio. Maybe those Ohio proponents just need to rethink their tagline. It's not a ban. It's not a ban. Anyway, if, if that works in Virginia, Chris, expect a lot of these taglines to be redefined. I mean, the, everyone will be picking up their copies of 1984 and uh, reading them again. We've never been at war with East Asia. <laughs> war is peace. And you know what our new tagline is? What's that, Chris? Talk to you next week, Tegan. See you later, Chris.